Welcome to the 4-H Lunchtime Ladies podcast, the podcast that will help you build your 4-H house one lunch at a time. This is hosted by Megan Parr and Wendy Scott, 4-H specialist in Texas. Welcome to episode two of the 4-H Lunchtime Ladies podcast. On this episode, we have a very awesome conversation with Dr. Laura Hubinger about volunteers, how to recruit them, how to retain them, and what to do with them once you have them. So we hope that you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Laura Hubinger. Hello, Laura. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> Woo, hey, hello. Glad to be here. We are excited to have with us Dr. Laura Hubinger. She serves as Extension Program Specialist for volunteer development here in Texas. And Laura, you've been on the job. Will it be a year, September 1? September 1 will be one year. September 1. Almost happy anniversary. But we felt like putting you right here on the front. We're starting a new 4-H year. People are starting to question about volunteers and how to get volunteers. So I think it's very appropriate you're joining us for our first three-person uh, podcast that we have going. So There's nothing like being the guinea pig. That's I right. thought about that <laughs> yesterday. I figured, I was like, I feel so honored to be the first special guest, but then I also felt well, maybe because we're all friends, and so we can have blenders together. Yeah. That's right. We, we have lots of those in this podcast. Luckily, we get to edit those out. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank goodness. Well, Laura, we're excited you're here, and, and let's kick off, and you know, volunteers are something we talk about a lot, but I'm going to say at least from, I saw this as an agent, and probably you saw this as a 4-H specialist, and Megan, I'm sure you saw it, and I have too, is agents, especially if they're new to a county, and there's been a, a non-existent program, the first question they ask is, where in the world do we even go find volunteers? Very good question. I remember being there um, as a brand new agent. Unfortunately, um, I moved or where I started, I was just 90 miles from home and it was a county that was in the same district where I grew up in 4-H. So I knew a few people, but not really. And so, um, gosh, where do you find them? What a, what a question. I, it's hard to know the right answer, but the, the things I would start with is if you're fortunate enough to have a coworker, start there, ask your coworkers. And then maybe the next step is to, um, Go find uh, your, your 4-H parents that are currently there. Start there. Build those relationships, and then maybe they can get you to the next people. You know, word of mouth. Uh, make those connections. And then the other thing that I kind of wish I would have done when I was in a county, um, especially when I moved to Indiana for, for a while, um, I worked for Extension up there, I should have joined a civic organization or something like that in the community and plugged in and met different people. Um, I think... It was maybe you yesterday, Wendy. We had our, our 4-H Summit um, Professional Development Conference online. Uh, and someone in the, the workshop I taught said, when you finally made the realization that you didn't have to just use 4-H parents, you could use other volunteers, whew, the world opened up for you and, and your volunteers exploded. So don't just think of parents. It's a great place to start. But then try to use those connections and, and grab other people um, through those connections, and then plug in yourself into different communities, church, schools. Here's another thought I had was uh, professionals. So if you're going to do a financial literacy program, you know, reach out to a, a banker or an investment guy or something like that to help you, or a school teacher or a, a chef or, you know, something like that, a, a professional. So when we're talking to new agents or just agents in general, we don't have to go look for that long-term volunteer we could look for specific volunteers for some specific things, right? Oh, exactly. Yeah. Um, and actually, I was reading some stuff the other day about some studies and whatnot about uh, trends in volunteers. And there's a whole list of trends. Uh, the one that cracks me up is slacktivism, <laughs> um, where it combines the word slacker, slacker and activism. Um, a slacker meaning someone who doesn't want to they don't want to put forth a lot of effort, but they, they want to make a difference. And so um, that's when you get like text in and donate money, those types of campaigns. But another thing on that list was episodic volunteers, which we've heard that term for, oh, I don't know, 10, 15 years. And those are volunteers that, that just want that short term. I think the days of finding those 30-year volunteers, even those 10-year volunteers, gosh, that's still a long time. We're not going to see those people as much anymore. Think about yourself. As a, if you're volunteering for an organization, 
yeah, you may stick around, but you may not do the same thing for that organization for 10 years. So yeah, we need to find shorter things for them to do or chunk it up into to more manageable pieces, I think. Well, and you mentioned something yesterday, and I, this really made a lot of sense, and I hope it did to the people listening. I hope it does to the people on the podcast about don't just think, well, we got to get volunteers. You mentioned something about having a needs assessment, and oh, I thought yeah. that was brilliant. Absolutely. You've got to have that first step. And honestly, I don't know that I ever really thought about it. I took a, a course uh, about a, back in January, I guess it was, or was it January, a year and a half ago? I can't remember. But that was one of the first things they said was do a needs assessment. I'm like, ha ha, light bulb came on. Figure out what you need to have done. And, and then you can go identify those people to do it. So is it, is it a new program you want to start, you know, from the ground level, or is it something that's kind of existing? You need a new volunteer, or do you need someone to teach one lesson? How do you, you just got to think about what you need, and then go out and try to find that person. I like that a lot. So let's say we've identified these people that we need. Does that necessarily mean that they should be selected as a volunteer? Or how do you know someone would not make a good volunteer? Well, if we knew the answer to that, had that magic eight ball, wouldn't life be wonderful? <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so you've got to, I think you have to have a conversation. That's where it has to start. And, and I'm not saying um, you got to have that face-to-face -face meeting, but at least a phone call. I mean, communicate, not through text, not through email or through some form online. Have a conversation and um, figure out if, if those needs do really match. Okay, so you have this skill set. This is what we need done. Do they match? If they don't match, then we're going to have a, a false start. We're not going to get anywhere. And so think about maybe if you can can put them in the right place. And longer term, they're going to be more successful. Um, you're going to get them to come back more frequently or you're retaining them longer um, because they're, they're being successful. So um, sometimes it's hard to know if you're going to have a bad volunteer. And so I think... I think you have to build trust. I think that's where it starts. You start small. Uh, I remember reading a book. I think it was a Lencioni book, Patrick Lencioni. He talked about trust. Um, and trust is a bunch of small actions or transactions where you make yourself vulnerable. So when you make yourself vulnerable, I'm relying on you to do this. Oh, you did it successfully. I built a little trust. Now I do this for you and it builds a little more trust. And so it's this back and forth to build that trust. And so you do a small thing and another small thing, and then that builds that trust, and then that can maybe move into a longer-term thing. If maybe our trust is not established well at the beginning, we're not doing those actions, following through on those actions, then maybe um, in the end, they're kind of let go. They're not that good volunteer. So we don't give them the whole cake at one time. We just give them a slice to start with, and maybe that'll help you in the long run to figure out if that's the right person for those types of jobs. And how, I mean, how do you have that? And this goes off, even off script of what we've talked about, but how do you, you know, do you sit in, do you have a job description? Now that question was on there, but, but really, because one question I keep being asked, I reached out to district two yesterday and the question was, how do you recruit? How do you sit down with someone and say, Hey, I want to chat with you about being a club manager or leading the photography project is how, how does that really start? That question, you said it just right there. Hey, would you like to be the photography club leader or project leader? Or would you like to be the club manager for this club? I mean, start there. <laughs> um, rather than putting out that general call in the newsletter, hey, we're looking for, for volunteers for this. A lot of people don't respond to that. Um, they respond to that specific ask. So that may be a way to start. Um, again, if you can, if you don't know the person to ask, um, maybe a, a group of, of current volunteers that you have may have those connections. Again, I relied on my coworkers a lot as a new agent to, to make those connections. And then again, if you've got a, a group of volunteers that you do know, maybe they, they know someone. So start with the question and then go from there. And then you said position descriptions, job descriptions, um, I know that we used to have some things written out for club managers. No, club managers are out there. Those are on the management guide on the website. But um, project leadership, I know we used to have some stuff, and I need to dig for them. Yeah, Wendy's nodding her head up and down. Yeah, we I know. Did. We did. I, I know. I don't know where they are either. So we'll have to, to look and dig for those. But 
take away from us providing you some two and a half page long position description. Ask yourself the five, five W's and H, who, what, when, where, why, and how. And, um, you know, think time specific. How long do they need to be there? Is it a one week project or a two year project? Um, what, what do they need to bring to the table? Like skills or equipment or time? What do I need to bring to the table as extension? What do I need to provide them? And, and start from there. Just start writing ideas down. And maybe that'll help you get in the right direction. Okay. Do you think that reaching out on social media is an effective way to find volunteers? Yes. And I say that because I know that we've used that in the past to find, like, photography judges, judges. and things like that. It, in, in my opinion, I feel like it's, it's a decent way to get them in the door and yes. then to capture them for something else down the road. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. So I think we agree on that point. I would say, because I've done it too. Hey, we need, I've done the photography judge thing because yeah. they can do that remotely. They don't have to even be in the same state as us. They can be somewhere else um, and, and do it online. So that's a great way. We've done it for roundup judges, you know, when we need people for competitive events that mm -hmm. are located in a certain area and, and we get them that way. Um, trying to think. I had another example in my mind, uh, and I've since lost it, but I think that's a good way to get them in the door. And someone said that in the workshop yesterday in our virtual summit, that being a judge um, for a contest or maybe an interview judge for something like our Gold Star Awards, that's a great way to get them in the door. And they're like, oh, wow, these kids are cool. This program is awesome. Now, what, what can I do more? And then again, we've started small, we've built a little bit of trust, and now we can maybe take it the next step. So I think social media is a good way to start. It may not be the permanent solution or the big solution to all our problems. Yeah, because it seems like we're dealing with a generation now that we're so used to in the past that, well, people know 4-H. Well, this, this group really doesn't. A lot of our parents, they weren't in it. They don't understand it. So I like what you said on that, both of you, about, you know, using those those short-term, those episodic things to get them in the door and start to learn about our program. That was good. All right. So if you can't tell, and you really probably can't tell by our questions, we're moving through the isature model is what we're doing. So that O and the T, it's you've got to have an orientation. You've got to have a training. Well, to most of us, that sounds like it's the same thing. But is it really the same thing? And what if you're going to orientate these volunteers, train these volunteers, is there an effective way to do that? What is the best way? Well, loaded question, maybe. Is there a best way? Who knows? Um, yeah, you're right. We are moving through Isature. So we, we did identify and select, and now we're going to do orientation and training. And I, I think I thought the same thing, too. Um, I've read some more about Isature, and, and orientation is more, in my mind, the way I describe it is the management, the rules, the policies, the procedures. Um, if you start a new job and you're a new physical location, part of the orientation is, oh, the bathroom's over there. <laughs> you know, these are the forms to fill out. This is those types of things. The, the housekeeping management type things is what I think of, of orientation. Training, on the other hand, is where we give them the skills necessary. So if I, um, for example, am going to be a food and nutrition project leader, I need to, so I've given them the orientation. They filled out the, the background check and the training and, and we're going to meet on these dates and, and times, or this is, this is your information list. Okay. Then the training comes in, let's say we're talking toward a contest. They need those contest rules, you know, so that's more subject matter specific, but then they may also need some helpful resources like, you know, how to teach kitchen safety, um, how to, um, the food temperature danger zone, those types of things. So I can direct them to where they can find those resources or, or train them in that information. You know, like our 4-H Explore project guides, that would be a good training um, topic and resource to give to our volunteers so that they can go and use. Um, does that make sense, kind of the difference between the two? Management, yeah, management for orientation and then leadership or development for, uh, for the training. Component. Well, and I, I like what you said. It's almost like the, the orientation is the knowledge and then the, the training is the skills. Yeah. So we got oh, knowledge like and we got skills. Now, I'm, I'm going to throw in something here and something we did. And I thought it was brilliant that kids came up with this idea. And, this, and we started training volunteers this way for Food Challenge is they were like, Wendy, you, you put stuff out and people go, what, what's Food Challenge? We don't know. 
And they said, start doing a first-timers food challenge workshop. So the first year we did that, we did it just for kids. The second year, we brought in the adults. And so I required their parents stay. And what was funny, that next year we had 21 food challenge coaches because they saw how the contest operated. And that's how I trained. And then we had kids versus adults. Because, you know, it's all about competition. Oh, that's fine. So, yeah, kids versus adults food challenge. But it was a great way to challenge so we could... And again, my long-term food challenge kids were involved in this is they were mimicking what a practice needed to look like. Oh, that's awesome. It, it was brilliant. Kids. Kids came up with that. That's kids awesome. Well, came think up about, with it. Not the adults. <laughs> <laughs> think about when we trained everyone on this contest, when it was a new concept 12 years ago. We trained by actually... 13 years ago, I think about it. It was right before I got married. Um, that's why I remember. Um, but that's how we trained everyone. We did the contest as adults. We, we've done that with a lot of contests. And I think that at, for, for our volunteers, um, that kind of going back to what you said earlier, where they can serve as a judge or come in and help with the contest or whatever to see it and go through it. I think that helps us retain those volunteers in the long run. Yep. Ooh, I wanted to add something else there to it. You know, like those people that may not know a lot about us. Um, I was reading something from National 4-H and, and I mentioned this yesterday that those volunteers that may not know who we are or what we do in 4-H, um, they are sold on the idea of teaching life skills to young people. And, and so if hmm. we can sell that message, don't focus on maybe food challenge for, you know, per se, like the example we've been using, but focus on making a difference with youth. And that's a good way to sell that and to get those volunteers to come and then hopefully stay long-term. I like it. Excellent. Okay. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Okay. All three of us that are on this call are very top A people. No. And I, I would go out to, to, to say that a lot of our county agents are type A type of people who like to be in charge. We like to know that the job is getting done correctly. We like to know that, you know, things are happening the way that they're supposed to happen. So how, as agents, do we turn things over to a volunteer without micromanaging them? And then how do we just be okay with the volunteer doing it their own way? And it might not be our way. It, it looks different. Oh, that, that hurts me a little bit. <laughs> I know it hurts a lot. <laughs> no, this, is why, this is why you're the volunteer specialist and you get to answer these questions. That's right. Oh, goodness. Welcome yeah. to the podcast, Laura. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, we're all, all type A. Oh, my gosh. We, we want to micromanage it. We want to do it our way because we know that it works this way. And then when we try to turn it over, we try to tell them every step of what to do. And yeah, so I. And then we're frustrated because it doesn't look the way that we would do it. Yes. <sighs> I know, I know. Megan, please don't ever let me do that to you. <laughs> Y'all that may not know that. Um, Megan, when I switched jobs September 1, Megan took my old position that I had been in for 11 years. And so I don't ever want to do that to her. I want to be helpful and provide knowledge that I have, but I don't ever want to force her to do it the way that I did um, because she's way more creative than I am. And so, um, but yeah, you've got to be okay with that. You, if you're going to need volunteers and, and we go back to the whole, why do we need volunteers? We need them because they can extend our reach. They can have a bigger impact than us. And that's just, that's the first thing. I mean, we need them for all sorts of reasons. They have expertise that we don't have. They have resources that we don't have. And so if we're going to trust them enough to come be a volunteer in our program, we need to trust them to do the right thing because we're going to do all those things at the beginning, right? We're going to make sure that we've matched, we've identified our needs and matched them, selected the right person. We're going to match those together. We're going to give them the orientation. We're going to give them the training. And then we've got to let them do their thing. Otherwise, they're going to get frustrated um, with us and then they're going to walk away because we're not letting them do their duty. Now, not, I'm not saying that we've got to just turn them loose and never talk to them again. Um, there's got to be that balance in there. But yeah, it's hard. I get it. But you've got to also be ready. I talk, I've talked about personal readiness as, a, as an agent um, or as a, an educator, if you will. You've got to be ready to have those volunteers. 
And, and if you can, I talk about a sweet spot. If you can get all that to come together, you as a volunteer need to be ready or excuse me, not as a volunteer, as a, as an employee, as the paid professional, the educator, you've got to be ready to accept them. You got to have those management properties in place. You've got to have that training in place. And then that sweet spot is in the middle where those volunteers truly become engaged when all of that overlaps. Um, that's, that's when they can truly do good things for your program. And, and so as a, as an educator, as an extension person, you kind of move through these stages. Um, there's, there's more than one model out there. The one I'm familiar with is, um, from Jim Rutledge, a guy that was, I think, retired extension now out of Oklahoma, I believe. And he had four stages to this model. He talked about service, um, education, management and leadership and talks about when you first move into a county or you're new in your career you're in that service mode you're you're building relationships which is key um, to getting this all off the ground relationships 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 and then um building those serving them you know the old saying they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care and so that's what you're trying to prove at this point in a way you're but but you're only limited to what what you can do right there. You can't grow beyond that. When you get into education, you're maybe seeing you more as a, an expert knowledge um, and those types of things. You might start employing a few volunteers, but again, only on specific things that we've trained them in. And, and so your program may grow a little bit, but again, we're staying in that stage. And then you can move on to the, the next two levels, which are management and leadership. And I would say Management is where I kind of got stuck as an agent. Um, I, I I let them have, you know, and I let them have a little more responsibility as volunteers. I saw them maybe more as a, a quote, unpaid employee, and they could go do some more things. I didn't sit over them all the time. Um, but then when we move into that leadership stage, um, that's where you grew that volunteer as a partner. And that partnership to, to make, to make the program better. They, they, they have ownership of the program and, and, um, gosh, we could talk, we could do a whole podcast on that, but, um, those, those stages, um, as a volunteer and, and you're going to, or as an educator that you go through with your volunteers. And if you can recognize that in yourself and, and recognize that there's an ebb and flow, um, someone pointed out yesterday in, in our summit that with some clubs, they're in that service stage, currently and in other places they're in management or leadership so there's and then if you move counties you know you're gonna have to start back over at that service level um if you go to a new position hello where i am now i'm i'm in that service um education role you know i'm still trying to prove myself and those types of things and building those relationships so um i think i got a little sidetracked here from the original question uh, <laughs> imagine that let's not like <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is going to be three hours long. Um, <laughs> hey, it's good information. It's okay. I'll edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Megan. I love you too. <laughs> hey, I think it's been good conversation. Okay, this question wasn't till later, but Laura, you said it, and I, I think we have to answer this because I think especially new, new agents themselves are going new to a county, and probably all three of us could answer this, is how long do you see once somebody gets in a county, how long is it before they usually can get that volunteer base? And again, I love that verbiage, sweet spot. How long is it till they usually find that sweet spot? I mean, is it in a year? Is it, I mean, how long are you normally seeing on something like this? Oh, once again, where's that magic eight ball, right? Um, I think he's crystal ball that he was talking oh, about. That's yesterday. right. He was talking about a crystal ball yesterday. Yeah, get Mincy's crystal ball. We need the crystal ball. Um, it, it's hard to know. Um, part of that, I think, relies on you as a um, your your readiness and how much you're willing to progress through those stages. I think it gets faster um, if you, again, if you move counties, you've already been through some of this once, and and all the the stars align, and you can move through those stages a little bit faster. I would say definitely looking at at a year to get places. I, I think someone said yesterday it was Michelle. Uh, she made the comment that, gosh, I re it's nice to see this model. Um, to know that I can move through it faster. So I know at the beginning of my career, I'm going to everything. I'm doing everything. I'm going to be with everyone. And to know at the end of the tunnel, there is a light and you don't always have to go to everything, but first you got to prove that. And so sometimes when I've done, worked with some new agents, I've told them, 
it's going to take a year. The first year is kind of maintenance mode. You're learning. You're not changing a lot of big things. Then the next year you can start to do some things. So give yourself at least a year, if not two. I know that seems overwhelming when you're brand new in the county, but give yourself some time to, to go through the cycle once and then and then start to reach out and build more from there. You don't have to do everything exactly the same for a year, but don't, if things were working okay-ish and there's not a need for a huge change, then kind of keep that way. But don't be afraid to, to change things as you go. But, you know, a good rule of thumb is is to to learn and then to start to grow that. So I'm, I'm guessing a year and before you can start to really dig in. Awesome. Okay, so we've been there for a year. We've got that volunteer base. How are we keeping them around? How do we retain those volunteers? You're super sweet all the time. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> because that's realistic. Um, you never have any conflict ever. 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 That's another podcast. That's a whole other podcast. Yeah. I told y'all last week that one's coming. Those crazy volunteers. That's a topic all by itself. Oh yeah, gosh. for sure. <laughs> okay, so how do we keep them? So some of them need, um, first off, let's just say thank you. We, we've got to thank them. We, uh, we've got to appreciate what they're doing. Do we write them a handwritten thank you note? Wow, that does go a long way. Um, sometimes it, it is a thank you email or something like that, or maybe it's a little more um, out there for other people to see. Um, and there's kind of formal ways to do that, informal ways to do that is, you know, do we uh, put their picture up on social media and thank them? Uh, or do we recognize them at a banquet or something like that? Um, so those are, those are ways that we can thank them. That, that goes a long, a long way, I think, to keep them coming back. But probably more important, as I should have mentioned first, is we've got to make sure we have that good match. We've got to make sure that the things that they're doing are things that they're matched, they're well-suited to do. Do they have the skills? Are they happy doing it? And then prevent them from burning out. Um, we, we have to think about having all of these, uh, these jobs to do. And, and this is a volunteer gig for most of these people, you know, or for these people. It is a gig, a volunteer gig. They're not getting paid for it. And so we can't expect them to live and breathe and do the whole thing. And so chunk it up, break it up over different people so that person's not getting burnt out. And I read something the other day, or maybe I was on another group or a podcast that said, you train that new volunteer to replace the other one while they're thriving, not while they're on their way out. Oh, I know where I heard this. Chelsea said this. Chelsea Rash, she's an agent up in the Panhandle, and she did a workshop at the 4-H Agents Association uh, conference a couple weeks ago. Um, and she made that comment. And she said, you've got to, you got to train the new person while we're thriving, not while that person's on burnout mode. And so if you can, if they can have a partner in crime, you know, someone just like we're bouncing ideas off of each other here. If, if they can have a place to someone to talk with and, uh, troubleshoot with or vent with or brainstorm with that really helps. I think the friendship helps prevent some of that burnout as well. I don't know. What else do y'all have? Surely y'all have wonderful ideas to retain them. I, don't, I love that idea about getting, doing it while they're thriving. I never thought about oh, it that way. I know. Yeah, that's awesome. Credit to thank Chelsea. You. Yeah, thank <laughs> you, Chelsea. Yeah, we try to shout out to different agents as we're on because we, again, I've always said our best ideas come from county agents and, and they've got it going on. So yeah, we try to shout out and give appropriate props when we can. Now we'll shout out to Rhonda Alexander. Her and oh, I yes. were talking about this the other day and we talked about the recognition and she said, that's where you have to know your volunteer too, because some want that oh, name and lots kind of deal. And some want the very behind the scenes, just write me a thank you note and I'm good. And I thought that's, that's really knowing your volunteers. That's having that to me, a deep sure. relationship. And I thought that was pretty smart to say pretty smart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's a generational thing too. Um, it is. It is. And, and I will say, I'm going to say retaining. And again, I'm, I'm pr still pretty fresh coming out of a county. I would say two ways we did, especially for project leaders, because it was easy. I never called them a volunteer. I always called them a coach. All I did was change oh the God. word. They were still doing the same thing. But they, they liked being a coach compared to a volunteer. 
also, I always made sure that they knew the time frame and they wanted to be short-term project leaders. In and mm-hmm. out. In and, in and out. And so they, even though Food Challenge was long, but really when you think about it in a whole 4-H year, Food Challenge is short. And then some of those same coaches would turn around in the spring and do duds to dazzle. And they liked it. And then they were done. And they'd pick back up again when it was time to start Food Challenge. And they knew their, their role. They knew where they, they fit. They exactly knew. We had it written down. I had I had basically a job description for them, and they knew coming in what they were in for. Hey, look at that. She's promoting job descriptions. Woo-woo. Job description. <laughs> or, I'm sorry, position, position description. description. I like that better. Position description. I'm going to catch back up on what you said a while ago. <laughs> Whatever. I, I like calling them a coach. That makes a lot of sense. You know, when you say, do you want to be a project leader, that, that term sounds so daunting and yeah. overwhelming to people. But if you break it down... I mean, everybody wants to coach like t-ball or baseball or soccer or whatever. You know, you got people lining up to do that. Why wouldn't you want to do that for the 4-H too? Be a coach for something there. I I like that a lot. Um, I bought them whistles. I bought them whistles and called. We had coaching clinic. That's all we called there, the training (laughs) coaching (laughs) clinic. Yeah, project workshop training. Yeah, our verbiage is what scares them. Again, shout out John Viava who's in uh, whatever that county is. He moved counties, uh, wherever yeah, he is. I'll think of it. Mule, Muleshoe. Um, he said that one day because he's come into a county that's a little bit different. And he said, Wendy, our ver- our own verbiage scares people. Yes. And it does. It does. Yes. So make sure when you report it in your mental reports, call it extension verbiage. But out in the real world, you may call it something else. Yes. We were talking about that with our new 4-H um, online enrollment system. I'm trying to make sure that everyone understood what they needed to sign up for and and so i tried to we have something we called an activity leader it's just a parent volunteer so i left both i put both terms in there i put parent volunteer slash activity leader and put in parentheses behind it most common because that's really they're they're not all club managers they're not all project leaders or i love the term coach i may go change it right put project leader slash coach in there right <laughs> i can do it i have access to do it um but, um, yeah, it makes more sense if we use terminology um, that matches matches what other people are saying. I, am I the next question? I got so excited. I don't know. Like Sorry. I, like I, I, wanna, I was reading Like, I want to leave and go work on some volunteers or something. I don't know. Woo, woo. Oh, you talked about recognition, Megan. That was your question. <laughs> All right. So the end of Isature is that E and it's evaluation. And when you mention evaluation to extension people, we think we're having a performance appraisal. Is that really what we're doing with our volunteers? Are they going to have to fill out a VITA? <laughs> yes, we require a VITA, a, a record book, an in-depth summary. They're a chief. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Never. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, so it is important because yeah, I thought the same thing, too. I'm like, it makes me cringe a little bit to think about it. But we should be evaluating the program, right, or the project or the activity or whatever they were working on and, and make sure we – it's kind of closing the cycle, you know, ending out the year, having that debrief. You know, we do that after a lot of our events, right? We have a debrief afterwards if, we, if we're following a good extension model, right? We debrief. We take notes about what we could do better for next year um, or the next time around or whatever. We, we try to make those notes. So we're evaluating the program, the job, the activity as well. But then we also, it's probably a good place to have a conversation about, do you want to do this again next year? Um, how could... Uh, how could we we do it better? And I think if we frame the questions appropriately, which takes a little bit of time and a little bit of um, uh, courage, I guess, in a way, if, if there's been a conflict or a concern, you've got to, to muster up that, that confidence to, to have that conversation. And it's not easy. I don't like conflict, that's for sure. But to maybe have that conversation and, and maybe start it off, okay, so what could I have done as the educator, as the agent, as the employee, what could I have done to help you be more successful and be open, be open to candid conversation there. And hopefully mm-hmm. we built that trust earlier, right? We've built that trust. And so now they can be candid with us and tell us what I need to do better. And then maybe we can appropriately phrase um, how we need them to maybe do things a little bit differently if needed. I mean, it may not be needed. Um, I'm not saying that we need to say, you need to be better at responding to my emails. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not what it is. Remember, this is a volunteer gig. They're not getting paid to do this. They have a real, a real job probably somewhere else possibly. Um, 
but you know what I'm saying? It, it is a time for us to, to debrief and have a conversation and, and make plans for, for the next year. Right. Awesome. I think. I like it. Good. Okay. So how do we take those volunteers that have an idea that want to go do something, but they want someone else to do it? How do we encourage them to be the ones that do it? So that can be tricky too. And I'm glad y'all sent me this question earlier because it, it made me uh, stop and pause for a moment to think about that. And so some of the things I wrote down is one way is if they really are dead set to not do it is ask them to help you identify the right person. Um, get them to think about someone that could do that. I mean, that's one way if they're dead set against it. But another thought I had was maybe sit down with that person and let's brainstorm the things we need to do. So just have them come with you. Yeah, it's a great idea. I, I, I believe you. <laughs> so come in, let's visit a little bit. What are you thinking? And maybe identify, um, going back to our isotur model, identify the needs. What do we need done? And break it up into smaller chunks um, into, you know, is this a, when we go back to our position description, we write everything down that needs to be done. Y'all should see me. I've got my hands flying everywhere. I can't talk without my hands. Um, but we write down that position description that's two and a half pages long. Whoa, that's too much. So how can we chunk it up into smaller sections so that, again, we're, we're not getting one person to have to do everything. And so that's, I think, maybe a way to start. And so maybe they can be one of those people in that role. Um, or um, maybe they're, they're the manager of it, if you will. They coordinate, and then we've got all these other people kind of underneath them. If, if we can get them to buy into that, um, or at least get them to help you identify the people to plug in there. Um, maybe they can be the uh, figurehead, if you will, since it was their idea. Um, and so if someone's got a, a, a question about purpose or idea or decisions, maybe that person can help um, help make that decision since they are the ones that came up with the idea, if you will. I, those were the couple thoughts that I came up with. Have, have y'all pondered anything else since seeing that question? Well, no, we gave it to you. <laughs> I know. <laughs> no, I think I never thought about it like that on asking them to have input on, okay, if you feel like you can't do this, then who's somebody? I, I get it. And I think the agent that asked that question will be like, yeah. I mean, that makes Great sense. idea. Yeah, that's a, you're so smart, Dr. Hubinger. Oh, sure. All right, this question, <laughs> I'm going to preface this question. Uh-oh. Because I have a feeling that probably if this person made it through, if there was truly, let's say, an interview on the front end, if you were truly doing this on selecting and sat down and had a conversation with somebody, usually if somebody's grouchy, that comes out pretty quick. But I'm guessing this person snuck through the system. They, they probably didn't talk on the front end. And so they had someone who wanted to be a foods project leader, but turned out to be a grouchy, a grouchy lady. So how do you suggest, and said so this person is great at baking. So would be great as that short term doing a baking workshop, but evidently this person is the foods project leader. So they're in it for the whole foods project, not just one tiny workshop. So how do you approach that grouchy volunteer? I'm sorry, this Yikes. question makes me laugh. But y'all, I think we I think we've all been through this. That person that we thought we knew them and then when they got in the situation, it wasn't what we thought it was going to be and you see things are headed a little bit south and how you know, it's not like you want to cut them loose. How do you Because they're a volunteer that wants to be there and does they, have good knowledge. Yes. So how do you how do you how do you steer them a different way? Bury your head in the sand. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, we are engaged in our 4-H program and building our 4-H houses. We don't bury our head. <laughs> I know. I know. But for someone who doesn't like conflict, you know, that's a natural reaction. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, I had a conversation with someone about this the other day. They had, it got too far down off the rails. Um, and these people were very unhappy. If we would have at the very beginning had the uncomfortable conversation um, to just and just be truthful and honest and open, then we could have uh, maybe headed it off at the beginning, you know, or 
as we first saw things turning in, in the wrong direction. Um, it, uh, light bulb just came on. Brene Brown. Are y'all familiar with Brene Brown? Oh, yes. Love yes. her. Yeah. And so she talks about um, being vulnerable and in the arena and all these types of things. But she says when you're polite about things and you don't say what you really feel, um, what is it? she likes to use the word rumble, right? Um, if, if we don't say what we really feel or really are thinking it because it's uncomfortable, um, we're just doing that to be nice, to make, make ourselves feel comfortable. Right. And so we need to be okay with the uncomfortable and have that, that possibly awkward conversation. Um, dude, I'm not an expert there. Again, I'm still struggling with that <laughs> personally, but I think if we can head it off at the beginning or when we first see things going astray, that will help tremendously versus burying our head in the sand or turning our back to it. So that's the first part is, okay, let's recognize it early. Um, cause we're engaged, right, Megan? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then the next thing is, I think maybe hopefully we have some other volunteers or other parents because um, you may not be seeing this as an agent right away. Maybe it is other parents coming to you that's seeing the grouchy old lady or seeing the, the, I, we keep saying grouchy old lady. I was trying to find another adjective there. No, I feel bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> Crank, cranky old man. <laughs> cranky old man. Yeah. We've got the grouchy old lady and the cranky old man. And, and so, um, you know, they're, they're not being a positive influence. The, so the fussy volunteer who likes to be in control. Yes, yes. The fussy volunteer likes to be in control. Thank you very much. And so um, we, we may have this person and, and we may not see it happen. So maybe it's parents coming to us to tell us that or the kids are telling us that um, or we, we show up at a, at, a, at a coach clinic or a, a workshop or a practice and, and we, we see this going on. Okay, so hopefully we have some other um, volunteers in place that can help uh, help us in that sense that they can kind of diffuse that situation a little bit. Um, or I'm trying to think what else I wrote down because that one kind of, like you said, it made me, uh, made me laugh a little bit too, because it's tricky because this is a person and they want to be there. Like you said, Megan, they have this great knowledge and, and, but that's tied to their self-worth a little bit, you know, in a way, this is their feelings. This is their personality. And, and now we're getting ready to say, Oh, sorry, your personality is not good enough for us. And so, Maybe we can rely on some of those other um, parents or um, other volunteers to help kind of, uh, I don't want to say push them out, but maybe that is a way. Maybe we can, again, divide it up, chunk it up. So maybe we're not giving that whole cake to them. We're just giving them that slice to begin with. To, and then we would learn when they have that slice, oh, they are kind of a fussy <laughs> person and we don't want to give them another slice of the cake or the whole thing. We... Uh, we chunk it out a little bit more, break it up into smaller pieces. And so no one is truly the lead over everyone. And, and so if you're in the middle of it in the middle of the year, maybe you have, um, you say, okay, I think we're not headed in the right spot. We have this conversation maybe as a full group or individually, we have some volunteers that would love to teach this, this, and this. And then that you have a, you have a plan that you've brought forward. So, um, it looks like you have other people that want to get involved. I'm a big fan of spreading the love with the volunteers um, so that we, yeah. again, don't, like you said, don't give them the whole cake. I think when we give our volunteers the whole cake, which is oftentimes what we tend to do because we're so overwhelmed with all the things that we have to do, slide it off the it's plate. easier just to slide it over to them. But when we give it to them, they're overwhelmed, and that's how we lose our volunteers very, yes. very quickly. And so I think I love what you said, split it up piece by piece and let one person take this piece and one person take this piece. And so that collectively we have the whole cake, but not one person is trying to eat that whole thing by themselves. I, I know that's when I had some of my hardest volunteer issues was when I had done that. And then I chose to not be engaged. And when, when I needed to be engaged, I stuck my head in the sand and that problem just continued to fester, fester, fester. And then it just got out of control. It became difficult. And again, that's for, that's for another podcast for another day. We'll, we'll talk about that. But usually if people hit things off in the beginning or they go through this, just like you talked about, Laura, all these things on the front end of having those conversations, that it's going to save some of that crazy stuff we may have to deal with on the other side. Sure. If they'll and take then, some time on the front. Sure. If you take the time on the front. And then sometimes you just, you walk into this new county and you, you, this is what you're dealt with, right? Or what you're the hand you're given. 
and and then you got to figure it out. And and I've talked to a new agent about that because it's a county. It's been a revolving door, and the only consistent has been the volunteers. And so yes. it's their program, and they forget now. There's a paid person there to take care of it. So it's it's taking this person some time to deal with this, and it it is difficult, y'all. We've all been there. It's oh, hard. Yes. Yeah. It's so frustrating to have to be in a new county where it has been a revolving door, and you have to be patient because as a new agent, you're there with all your your super cool ideas, and you're raring to go. But I equate it to like being a racehorse at the starting gate. You're ready to take off, but no one will open the gate for you to go. And that's what it's like being a new agent in a county like that. You know, you're raring to go, but you can't do it yet because you haven't done what you said earlier, Laura. You haven't built that trust yeah, with those volunteers so that they know that is, that is where you're at and that you are going to be that constant for them. You have to build that trust there. That is Absolutely. true. That is true. Well, Laura, I don't think we have, I threw that last thing on the end, but is there anything else that you want to share? <laughs> I mean, this, this has been good. I can't wait to go back and listen to this on Tuesday. I'm excited about that. But yeah, is there anything else you want to tell us about volunteers? Well, I have to laugh. You did say what are the, it would be fun to share top five things I wish people knew about volunteers. And so honestly, that was the one that stumped me the most. I'm like, oh gosh, what are the top five things? Don't do it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Run. Run as fast as you can. Run away. Run away when you see that county agent coming. <laughs> I have an opportunity for you. Yeah. Oh, um, no, I actually, I did think about this one a little bit more. Um, two things came to my mind really quickly. Um, one was that personal readiness we talked about earlier, um, making sure you're ready to handle and know that we're, they're not going to do it like we want to do it. So you got to sit on your hands a little bit, maybe bite your lip that, Oh, that's not the way I would do it, but you know what? They're going to get it done and everyone's going to be happy. And in the big scheme of life, it's going to be okay. <laughs> right. Um, so personal readiness and you have to, you have to understand and feel the need for their importance. That's I think number one. And number two, I did a, a, a focus group with some agents. Gosh, it's been back in December, so it's been a while. But the number one thing I took out of that conversation was relationships, 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 relationships. That's the most important thing you can do when you first come to a county or you're trying to get into a new community is build those relationships. And it goes back to what we just talked about. Like you said, Megan, trust. You've got to, um, build that trust in the relationships. And then I, I wrote down three other things. I'm trying to remember what they were. Um, you, oh yeah. If you're, uh, most people want to help. Most people like the idea of giving back and serving. And so you just have to ask, don't be afraid to have that, that conversation. Hey, I'm looking for um, someone to do this. Would you be willing to do X and be specific and, and, um, maybe don't show up with the, the job description in hand, but it's like, I can send it to you, look over it, that type of thing. Um, so you have to ask. And, and, uh, I think again, Wendy, this was your idea. One of the things I wrote down, go beyond just the parents, um, think about other, other groups, organizations, professionals, um, maybe, um, retired folks, um, college students. If you live near a college town, mm -hmm. oh, if you've got some former 4-Hers there, I mean, you've got, they love to come back. Oh, I know. I wish I would have thought about that sooner. And, um, and I, um, singles, single people. Um, I don't know where you plan to go meet these people, you know, um, but, uh, you know, if they're, if they, if they're not, this sounds funny, if they're not, um, out, you know, with their family every evening, doing school homework, playing ball, those types of things, they're maybe looking for a social activity. They, these two are laughing at me, everyone. Um, but people that, um, they still have family and friends and social things that they do, but, but maybe there is a way that they can be social and plug in with 4-H as well. So that was, you never know, time. we might find them a future spouse. <laughs> I know, I mean, right? you can send them my way. I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> Everyone, Megan's phone number is, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you must fill out Megan's Google form, eye color, height. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. Find a date for Megan. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. And then <laughs> <laughs> number five that I put on my list was Isature. 
um, just think about the isotreme model and walk yourself through those steps. And it doesn't have to be super formal. I mean, we talked about all the, the formal ways you can do it. You should have watched this training course that I did. They were super formal and they had these little um, videos that they did modeling the behavior. So cheesy, so formal. I'm glad you could be with me today. Um, and so make it, uh, follow the steps that you don't have to be as formal and rigid about it. Um, but if you can do the, the legwork, I think it'll, will help you in the end. Awesome. This has been excellent. Just so excellent. Good. I'm so Yay. excited. Okay, Laura, if people have questions after they listen to this podcast, um, how can we get in contact with you? Well, um, no, I was going to come up with something cheesy and funny, but I'm not that, that quick. <laughs> um, <laughs> my email is lhebinger at ag.tamu.edu. So that's L-H-U-E-B-I-N-G-E-R at ag.tamu.edu. And that's the best way to get me. Um, and if, if not, you can look me up in AgriLife People um, or I'm in the email directory if you're here in Texas. Awesome. And we'll put that email in our uh, show notes so that people can, can click on that directly, too. Yes. Fancy show notes. Show notes. Now, show, show notes, notes, can we put in resources in there, too, Megan? Yeah, we sure can. We can so we might, resources. and we'll talk to Laura if there's any resources that she talked about today that we may need to put in there for people. So mm -hmm. uh, that way you've got those at your fingertips, too. Yeah, a lot of the things we talked about um, yesterday during the workshop with the 4-H uh, Summit, the Professional Development Summit, um, a lot of those things were in my presentation, so I could even, we can link the PowerPoint or something, too. Yeah, yeah. If you'll send that to me, I'll drop it all into the, to the show notes. That'd be awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so much for talking to us and being our inaugural guest. Yay, um, I feel today. so honored. We, um, I, I think it was a really good conversation about volunteers, and we have some good tools to put in our toolkit to continue to help our professionals not just survive but thrive in their um their jobs so with that wendy you have any final thoughts i don't think i do okay Dr. laura hubinger thank you this was thank it you. was just exciting was so fun. look at you we need volunteers y'all you gotta have them work with them yep. absolutely yep awesome so with that we're gonna close out and we will see you all next week We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the 4-H Lunchtime Ladies podcast. We'd like to continue this conversation with you over on our social media pages. So be sure and follow us on Instagram and Facebook and connect with us there. You can find us at the 4-H Lunchtime Ladies on both platforms.